welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the actors, the cinematographers, the costume designers, production designers, visual effects wizards, the composers, the sound editors, sound mixers, film editors, even authors, you name it, and we talk to them. Hard to believe it's already the end of July. This year has just been zipping by, and we've had a lot of fabulous guests this year and a lot of fabulous pre-recorded interviews because we can't always coordinate an interview with a Monday show. And that's what's happened for today's show. I've got two fantastic pre-recorded interviews for you that I did on Friday. Talent was not available to do a live call into the show today. So I am putting this show together for you at home on Sunday night so that Pam will be running it for you from the studio tomorrow. So if you're watching on the Adrenaline Radio Facebook page, you will see I am not in my chair, nor do we have any really cool set dress on the tablescape. So I apologize for that, but I'm going to make it up to you later this month because August is just fantastic. I've got great guests lined up for you in August and September. So stay tuned and tune in and log on every week to keep following what's happening on Behind the Lens. But for today's episode, it is dedicated to a film that I really am impressed by. It is an indie film. It is not an AMPTP film, which is why I could speak with Jamie Bernadette, horror icon herself. Uh, Jamie and I spoke at length about this film. She is one of the stars. She is also boots on the ground producer with this one. Uh, and is collaborating with writer-director Jim Towns. Jim is a horror veteran as a writer and director. However, this is the first film he's done with any zombies in it. End Times is, of course, it is a post-apocalyptic zombie film. It stars Jamie and her co-star Craig Stark, who is, the two of them are just incredible, watching them on screen and watching their story unfold as Claire and Freddie. A pandemic, a viral disease pandemic, has decimated Los Angeles. Don't know about the rest of the world, but definitely Los Angeles, which is where this film takes place. This was shot before COVID. So whether this is prescience stepping in um, or what, uh, a foretelling of things to come in the real world, but uh, the timing is extremely it adds a little creep factor, a little chill to the story. Claire has, you know, very clear. She is young, suburbanite, dresses well, but she doesn't know how to survive in a post-apocalyptic world. She has not been infected. She is not a zombie. She's kind of wandering around, total loss, almost catatonic. Freddie is former military, and he lost his daughter to this virus. Each, and they each undergo extreme hardships, uh, suffering from PTSD before they finally connect and run into each other. Freddie tries to take Claire under his wing to teach her how to survive, and they become traveling companions we watch their story unfold as they move around Los Angeles to survive. And what ultimately comes out of this film, Jim Towns has done a terrific job with the messaging here. He really taps into what it means to be human when humanity appears to be lost. Uh, he uses beautiful cinematography courtesy of Ray Carwell's that captures a stark harshness and degradation of 
a post-apocalyptic Southern California coast, uh, making great use of mountainous areas, rocky ocean cliffs, crags, as well as some beautiful locations up in Laurel Canyon. Uh, you will notice the sharp-eyed cinephile out there when you watch End Times, you're going to notice quite a bit of, quite a few locations that might have popped up in other films uh, and in better shape than they're in for this film. And in my interview with Jim, we talk about this and he gives you some really fun trivia about the filming locations for End Times. I spoke with each one of them, Jim and Jamie, independently. Jamie provides amazing insight into producing. She has been producing for quite a while and she brings a wealth of in front of experience in front of and behind the camera to her collaboration with Jim in getting end times off the ground. The, the cinematography, as I said, is by Ray Carwells. Chris Villa does the editing. The pacing is excellent. The zombie makeup in this film, and I talk about this with both Jim and Jamie, it is superb. But there are a few, a few little hiccups that they also had to contend with because they were shooting in the summer in 100-plus degree heat. Uh, and anybody in Southern California knows how bright and hot the sun and the temperature gets. So they had their own kind of apocalyptic challenges while they were making this film. It is very well structured, very well put together, but it's the, the character study of Freddie and Claire and the friendship that develops. And then not to give any spoilers away, but it culminates with fatalistic heartbreak and it will this film will sit with you long after it ends but without any further ado let me let you take a listen to the first of our two interviews my exclusive interview with writer-director Jim Towns talking about the emotionally powerful and thought-provoking end times take a listen Hi, Jim. How are you? Very good. I can't thank you enough for taking time to talk with me about End Times. Oh, I'm excited to. Thank you very much for the invitation. I love this film. Oh, great. Wow. This was so compelling. You really show us what it means to be human when humanity appears to be lost. I love that. I just, I love how you just put that. That's beautiful. Thank you. You have two of the most compelling performances coming from Jamie and from Craig mm -hmm. as Freddie and Claire. Definitely. When yeah, they're great. It's very rare to get a two-hander where you've got characters and actors that are building each other up and really playing on each other in service of the story to this level. Just thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, that was the goal was to tell like kind of the small story inside the big story, right? What you do, this it's really insightful with how you structure these characters. Freddie is broken and has his own inner demons because of the choices he had to make between himself and his daughter. You've got Claire who gets raped while she's wandering around in a post-apocalyptic Los Angeles up in the Malibu, yeah. up in the Canyon and then, and on the beach. And neither one has any reason to really survive. Right. Exactly. You've nailed it. I mean, I think you really got what we were trying to do was, was take the two characters who were just desolate at the beginning and find, they find a reason to, to live in each other. Actually, it's, it, it, Absolutely. You're, you're right on top of it. Watching that and then to watch a friendship as each of them is working through their inner trauma. Traumas that neither one will ever totally leave them. Right. But they find purpose and friendship. And this is where your editing, Chrisville's editing and your cinematography, um, Ray Carwell's cinematography, 
we absolutely right. All of that put together in some of the training montages as Freddie is trying to tr teach Claire how to survive and use a machete. And it is so beautifully done. There's a great beauty and lyricism into those segments that stand out apart from the horror of the world. You know, you find those moments, you, you know, in tough times, right? There's these little happy moments or whatever. It, it, it's nice. And I think it's good for the audience, too. I, I, I figured out a long time ago, the happiest people, something to smile or, or be okay about in the midst of everything, or it just, you know, it turns into a monotone. Right. It's beautiful. And then you counter all of the starkness. And I'm going to, I want to get into that in a minute with your work with Ray and your locations. But then you give us the cult. And it's all beautiful up and up in the hills. It looks like it's the Laurel Canyon area up there. Oh, and it's so green, and the sun is shining, and we get some beautiful sun flares happening, some some nice bouquet, and everybody looks so pretty and clean. Yeah, uh, that's right. They're all yeah. We got all these really like model looking types. It's like Charles Manson has come back to us. Totally. Yeah. With his family. But those pop out, but then reality always sets back in. And the way you have balanced this is so well done, where you give us respites, you give us hope, but then you bring us back into the reality of what's really happening. And it's just the structure yeah. is so well done, and so much of that comes from your visual grammar and your locations and your work with Ray. How did yeah. you pick the locations for this film? Because this is critical with this film. Totally. Um, you know, we we shot during a summer. Uh, we shot pre-pandemic, actually, and then edited and you know for a year or two, and then the pandemic kind of slowed us down, and, and you know, obviously now here we are. Uh, it was a, probably one of the hottest summers I remember in, in L.A., and obviously the film is 80-something percent probably exteriors. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those were up in places that we did not have ready access to food and restrooms and water and then everything. We had to really hump in and hump out and, and uh, really very little protection against the elements. So it was a hard, hard shoot for everybody, uh, you know, especially, you know, crew and, and you know, you know uh, Craig is wandering around with, like, you know, long sleeves on and heavy pants and everything. He's just sweating like crazy. Um, Jamie obviously didn't have to wear as much, so she's a little bit better. She was very tan by the end of this, this thing, man. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you that. Uh, but, um, you know, some of those locations, it, it's all, it was all a network. It was all reaching out and, and seeing who knew of any place that would suit a certain type of thing. Uh, I was lucky enough, I live in San Pedro, and I was lucky, I moved there just a year or two before, and I was excited about this new part of L.A. that I was living in, and, and its history, and, and some of its locations. So I was lucky in that we got to film a lot of the film, probably a third of the film, I could I could drive to the location from my house in like five or six minutes, which, you know, it's, it's good to be king, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like, everyone else is commuting all the way down from the valley, and it takes an hour, and, you know, I'm like, oh, here I am, hey, guys. Um, but, uh, but that was really nice. Yeah, you know, we shot um, in Sunken City, uh, which is really the only place we ever got kicked out of. <laughs> they, the cops do not like people down there because people do occasionally fall from those cliffs and stuff. It is a little dangerous. But that's, you know, it's a whole community that I think in the 80s or so, mm -hmm. they started having all the subsidence on the cliff yep. falling down into the ocean. They had to move everyone out and, and tear the houses. Now you have this beautiful place where, where everyone, you know, goes down and they, they tag it and spray paint it. So it's honestly just a lovely area. Um, uh, yeah, shot there. We shot uh, some stuff at, at Fort MacArthur where they walk through the, the big depression. That's where they used to put like the big, I don't know, 50 millimeter guns or something like that during mm -hmm. World War II. Uh, that, that exact location you see in a couple movies, including Pearl Harbor. It's where Mako and the other Japanese uh, generals are planning the attack and they have that flooded and, and you know, guys are moving around toy boats to simulate Pearl Harbor. Uh, you know, uh, you probably recognize the, the Batman cave up in, up in Bronson Cave. Yes. Um, you know, I, I just I've, I've visited a bunch of times, and I've always just wanted to shoot something there just because it, it's legacy, not just Batman, but, you know, I, I when they come out of the canyon, there's a shot of them looking through the tunnel out, out mm -hmm. of the canyon or looking up at the cliff, and that that's the exact, I, I lined it up, it's almost the exact shot that's in the searchers when John Wayne comes, or his stunt double, I guess, comes galloping down the, the, the side of that hill on horseback. So, you know, 
if you're living in LA, it, it is nice as a filmmaker to just to get to quote some of these other really famous films just a little bit, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then walk in those same in those same footsteps. Sometimes the big location was uh, it's very it used to be very near me, and now it's a housing community with like you know 1.3 million dollar townhomes. But uh, at that time, it was a an old uh, housing place for people who worked in the naval yard in uh, Long Beach. Uh, for military personnel, and it had been closed since the 80s, and it was overrun, overgrown, and you know, all the houses were, were shut down, and there were coyotes and everything. And I was lucky enough to get permission for us to shoot there, but we had to. We it was the summer, so the sun would go down at eight, and we couldn't start until 4 p.m. after all the bulldozers were done because because of safety. Uh, so we had to shoot very, you know, all that stuff very quickly. And wow! It was fun because we got to shoot, you know, some of the interiors there. We would shoot. And we'd go film other stuff, and we'd come back about a week later. And now that that whole building we were filming in is now a pile of rubble, and we shot like them getting attacked by the zombies in that same physical location, that same plot. And then we come back a month later, and they shoot, and we shoot them sitting by the campfire. It's all within a couple, you know, dozen yards of each other, but the landscape just kept changing because they were tearing it down as we as we shot. So we had to shoot very quickly. Obviously, we, there wasn't an option to go back and pick up some shots. Right in one of those locations if we didn't get it because that location was not going to be there in a few weeks. But it certainly played to your advantage. Oh, it sure did. I mean, those early scenes of him driving around and, and the, you know, in and, and the, the thing listening to the radio and everything, it's just, you know, you know, trying to create this, this feeling of, of this desolated world mm-hmm. in the midst of one of the most populous cities in the United States was, you know, there are things that are just fun challenges and that actually was a fun challenge. The fact you shot this before the pandemic and the fact that this is this apocalyptic e- mm. event is disease caused. I don't know if it fortuitous or fresh yeah, or when, prescient. That was it. Honestly, just felt a little strange when that when, that, when everything started happening with coronavirus and when it was twenty twenty. Uh, you know, I was about to start shooting a, a pilot for a martial arts thing, and that got shut down and put on hold for a year. Uh, we you know we were pretty much done editing at that point. And uh, and all this was going down, and Jamie and I did like communicate a little bit, just going like, "This is it's a little weird, right? Because there's some things. It's like we kind of called um, the script was actually originally uh, written. I wrote it. I, I wrote a version of it, I should say, back in 2005 when I right as I moved to LA, mm-hmm. and uh, it was sort of inspired by the year before that had been the avian flu. Uh, uh, you know, scare up in Canada. So it was actually inspired by another virus that was something that had jumped species from that, in that case, from birds, obviously, to, to humans. Um, and they talked about quarantining the whole area and everything like that. And luckily that one did not get nearly as bad as, as, as COVID-19. Uh, but so in a way, it was the, the idea was based on something that then being kind of similar to what happened to us the last couple of years. And that was just, you know, but with the masks, the, the cult wears and everything like that. Yeah, it was it was an eerie uh, bit of you know life imitating art just a little bit. It was it was it was strange. Well, I have to say, with the whole setup with the cult, kudos to your production designer on creating that whole the showering area and yeah. panels. It was it it gave enough of a creepy vibe so that you were never fully comfortable with these people. Yes. Yeah. You know and. Uh, as a filmmaker, you, you know, part of your job kind of is to, in any kind of situation, is give the audience a bit of a understanding of the geography of the scene. Like, where's where's the door and where's everything? Where the, you know, obviously, like in a sitcom, you have a very clear idea. For this, it was fun to just not do that. And I, I, I just had this idea that the, the garden where these people all live is a very strange mix of we're never quite sure understand where where's the thing where's this thing mm-hmm. where's this thing even though they walk around and part of the reason is that 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 location was filmed in about four different actual locations the you know the outside of the, the barn is one place up in uh, that was actually up in uh, Topanga Canyon um, the inside of the barn is is somewhere else and and you know and everything like that so uh, <laughs> but um but that was. Um, I, that was my first experience as a filmmaker walking on the set and having about 30 actors standing there waiting for direction, which, you know, <laughs> that, that, that's, a, that's a step up from, you know, we've been doing all this kind of like these just 
scenes with two people or maybe four people or mm-hmm. five people and then suddenly yeah bam uh it's a lot of people but we were very fortunate to have a lot of uh jamie has a great network of, of actors she's worked with in the past and that's how we just we got uh dan baran who is the the leader of the the, the gang as well as marie olsen um and that's also how we got uh uh, uh Ky- lyman uh, who's the leader you know hayden the leader of the cult and stuff like that and he's just you know he's fantastic and he is he is you know um some of the some people have said their favorite line in the film is when uh, when when Freddie refers to him as Viking Jesus. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> it was funny because I don't think that was in the original script. And then we cast him. We cast we cast uh, uh, Kai, and I was like, yeah, okay, you know, Viking Jesus. That sounds good. Kai's Kai's a beautiful guy. He's, he's such a nice dude, and he's gone on to do so many other things like Dennis Eve and everything, like great film stuff. Uh, but is is at heart just a sweet guy, which is always the way. Like you know the the. The, the actors who are best at playing villains are always just the sweetest people. Oh, absolutely. I think that's what makes them such good villains because they get to do something that is not in their nature. Right. Well, I think you have to understand like why people do bad things. And to do that, you have to be kind of a decent person to be able to have that perspective, mm-hmm. maybe. Maybe that's what it is, yeah. You know, how beneficial was it to you and how important was it to cast people like Craig and Jamie because this is actually quite physical, their performances. Yeah. And not even so much as in terms of action and shooting and, you know, one-on-one combat, but just the trudging and climbing through rocks and crags. Yeah. And yeah. that's very precarious and wears on you, especially in the heat. Yeah, de- de- definitely, and and um, you know, I mean, it's a plot point in the film where Jamie spends half the movie flip flops, which are totally not you know suited to, to, yeah. this, to this kind of activity. Um, you know, and, and it, it had its challenges. Craig, uh, I think Craig was about in his late forties or so when, when we did it, um, maybe early fifties, and uh, he had had a back injury not too long, maybe a year or so before, and he'd been going through some treatments and yoga and everything, trying to get it better, and. Uh, you know, he he would be doing fine, and I I also have a back injury from a, a car wreck a bunch of years ago, so I, I kind of knew where he's coming from, because he'd be doing fine, and then suddenly, you know, something would go, and, and there's a plenty of scenes where he's working through quite a bit of discomfort and pain uh, uh, to, to get through those, those moments and stuff. Um, you know, luckily he'd had a decent amount of experience with guns and, and guns and shooting, uh, both in his life back in Louisiana and then also obviously doing uh, uh, Django Unchained mm-hmm. and a bunch of other movies, right? I mean, you know, he, both, both shooting people and getting shot yes. uh, <laughs> in films. So, um, you know, we, uh, we were uh, made an effort, this is, you know, before a lot of the recent, more recent incidents, but even, even then, we, because we were filming in kind of drought conditions, we had we could have no blank firing weapons we could have no squids or anything like that on set just because of the danger of fire and where we were up in the up in the canyons so all the um all the gunfire is digital uh, a lot of the blood effects are actually compressed air effects they're not squids mm-hmm. uh, that are then augmented digitally so um you know that's when it, it just pays to have uh, a really good uh, vfx uh, team uh, mm-hmm. working on the thing because you know there's there's these great moments where, where craig will shoot and there's not only the muzzle flash and everything like that, but if you really pause it, you'll see there's little kicks of light reflecting in, in each of his eyes from the muzzle flash and stuff. You know, it, it's things that, like, you know, when you get the right person doing that, it really sells. Well, and with your VFX, um, you get Damon Shelton, who is incredible, and he's now worked on The Last of Us video game. Yeah, he he'd, um, he'd worked on that, I think, or was about to work on that when we were doing it, and I think when he finally saw the, the film he was kind of like you know this is this reminds me of a project i've been working on and then turns out a few years later obviously the the the, the hbo series uh, comes out which i think now people sort of connect our film to that and it's just ironic obviously that that we, we went back a few years before that and uh we work with somebody who was kind of instrumental in the, in the game version of that film but yeah uh but he got it i mean they, you know it helps that he he got the story we we're telling he got the look we were going for and, and and, you know, that, that all dovetailed very nicely. Talk to me about the challenges of editing this. Your editor, Chris Villa, I mean, does a wonderful job editing, as I mentioned earlier, with the montages. But even just finding the pace here. Because this is, it's yeah. very important because we've got Freddie and Claire and you can't rest in one spot. You have to keep moving or die. Right. 
It's yeah. it's that simple. Uh, it's, but it's a road it, movie, really. Yeah, I mean, it really is. How yeah. challenging was finding the pacing of this film? I think early on, uh, I, I met Chris uh, on my film House is Bad. Uh, our our editor Nina Lucia uh, brought him on, and he he he'd worked under her on uh, some other production. Um, and uh, and and he she cut the film, and then he uh, he helped me cut all the the promotional stuff and the behind the scenes featurettes and stuff, which we did kind of a series of those. So that was quite a, a thing. And that's how Chris and I had started working together. And then when it came around time to do this, I brought him on, and this was his first feature uh, dramatic credit uh, editing. Um, and he's gone on to do all sorts of great stuff since then. And stuff. He's really grown as, as an artist. It's great. Um, you know. Uh, but I don't think he really edited a, a, a dramatic feature, so it was kind of a, a bit of just starting out and getting all the footage together and, and really talking about how the scenes play and how much air is supposed to be in there. I'm a big I'm a big believer that you know a lot of the story is told between the words of of scenes, even even you know conversation scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I think the space and the rest in there is important. I think that tells you a lot about what the characters are, are thinking but not saying. And and I think every film has to find its own tempo. And this film, I really was dedicated to doing a, a, a film that, you know, my last film, House of Bad, had been uh, mostly took place inside one house. It was very claustrophobic. Uh, and it was, you know, a 185 film. And I really wanted to do a, a widescreen 235 movie it was two hours long. I wanted to do an epic. I wanted to do like a, a, a spaghetti western zombie kind of thing, mm-hmm. and that's why Craig's character has very you know gunslinger kind of kind of uh, uh, tendency. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in doing that, the yeah you uh, you're you're picking up exactly kind of what I was talking about is like um, you know there's a pacing thing that goes on there, which you know some people can look at it and go, well you know not much happens and there's a lot of walking, and a lot of like that. but you know the walking is the story too. It's 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 part of the story is about how hard everything is in this yep. world where you can't go to the fast food place and pick up a hamburger and you can't, you know, call the police for help when, when you're in trouble. And that's kind of the idea. So you want the audience to go through the experience with the characters. And that's why, yeah, man, it, it, it's hard for them. It's hard to get to A from A to B, what they're trying to do. Uh, and it takes time. And that time gives you time to, to live with the characters and hopefully fall in love with them, and then you know hopefully cry for them when when bad stuff happens. Not to give anything away, but boy oh boy, this has the ending. It it has this. It's a heartbreaking fatalist mm-hmm. ending, and it really it broke my heart, but oh. it also made me happy to see how. Yeah. to see how you end this. That's why I say it's a heartbreaking fatalist yeah. ending. Be- um, you know, I, I, I say tropes are tropes just because they almost always work, and that's why, you know, the villain turning good at the end and, and saving everybody comes up in so many movies because for some reason it resonates with us yeah. all the time. It almost always works. Uh, and, and when you do a zombie film, obviously there's a lot of those tropes that you can easily trip over. Uh, and and be repetitive uh, if, if you're not really uh, trying to to put a lot of effort into doing your own thing. But the nice thing about tropes is it's fun to take those and turn them on their head mm-hmm. and give the audience the the last thing they're expecting. Uh, that 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 end whole end scene is vaguely inspired by one of my favorite films, which is Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, where at the end of the the battle, you know, the old one of the old samurai turns to his older samurai friend. And, you know, a lot of the younger samurai have been killed, and the old guy looks at each other and he says, "We've lived again." Mm-hmm. And he kind of he kind of can't believe it, and he's kind of but he's but he's resigned to it. There's a fatalistic thing. It's like no matter what, they seem to not be able to die. Um, when you when you've been kind of expecting the the more Star, Star Wars thing, where Luke Skywalker is trained by Obi Wan Kenobi, and spoilers, Obi Wan Kenobi gets killed, and Luke has to continue his training now on his own. Uh, I just wanted to switch that up a little bit, and yeah, not not to throw down spoilers, but uh, I wanted I wanted to set you up for one ending and then give you something different, mm-hmm. uh, and then make you live with that for a while. So really, like you know, the film is it's three acts, and then there's a extended coda. Yeah, I like to think of it is it's about the ten minute thing at the end where 
all the running and, and fighting and everything has stopped. And now we're, these characters we've, we've spent this much time with, now we get to sit with them just for a, you know, a little while and watch as they go through the end of their story together. Mm-hmm. I love it, but it, it's heartbreaking. It's supposed to be. I mean, you know, if, if, if you didn't care about it, I feel like I would have done, I, I'd done something wrong. So that's, that's how it's supposed to be. Oh, well, you did everything right with it. So don't even question yourself there. Now, I would be remiss, Jim, to not bring up a standout element of this film, and that is the zombie makeup. It is yeah. not over the top. It really looks very realistic as to what would happen with skin breakdown from a physiological standpoint of a disease. Yeah, that's and, and that's what sort of the mission statement was for that, was, was that not everybody is at the same stage. So obviously when you meet uh, his daughter towards the beginning, she has just pretty recently gone over. Uh, I think the mo- one of the most <clears throat> excuse me, extreme cases of it they run into is, is what we call the, the chain zombie uh, uh, that, that he, he uses about a, an hour in to, to help uh, train her. Um, yeah, we, I really talked to, to, the, to the makeup artist. We had quite a few on the film uh, about uh, something that would that would be starting from the inside out and starting to <clears throat> liquefy your organs from the inside out, some kind of horrible virus, um, something where where your nervous system would start short circuiting and you wouldn't be able to move in in the right way. And you know, we looked at all sorts of references like Parkinson's and MS, um, and we looked at gen- degenerative diseases. We looked at a lot of things that were just awful to look at. Uh, but just in the interest of selling this as, as not some cosmic event and not some supernatural thing, really um, really making it believable so you could imagine, like, the pain that would go through as, as your body starts shutting down mm-hmm. and, and how it it takes long enough that you start, you're aware of what's happening as it's happening, and that's really the hard part. I'm very impressed with the zombie makeup because you didn't go into overkill that we normally expect to see and see. Yeah. In films, yeah, it's, it's the monsters, right? Yeah, you know, all of a sudden, idea. you know, they've got boils and they're oozing green, and you know, the skin is turned red and the mouth is turned black overnight, seemingly. But to yeah. see the various stages, and it looks very physiologic in terms of of a body breaking down. Yeah, we had we had lots of discussions about uh, body fluids and orifices leaking. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of discuss and stuff, but you know, that, I mean, towards the end, you see that a lot. Where like, like I never see it. It's just like you know, where like stuff's coming out of your ears and stuff, and you're just like, oh, that's just really gross. Um, you know, I think we've all been sick to some degree with the flu or with something even worse, where you know when your body's starting to do things it's not supposed to do, and you're like, oh, this is just. You know, I think the important thing is to, to give an audience just a little bit of a reference where they can be like, oh, I, I can almost kind of imagine what that would be like. Absolutely. Yeah. It looks but believable it, and painful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, you know, the big days, I'll say, on, on, a, on, a, on a zombie day uh, are tough because if you have seven or ten or twelve actors coming in for zombie makeup and you have three makeup artists, then, you know, they'll, they'll each have three or four people to go through and the problem is by the time they're done with the fourth person it's been an hour and a half since they finished the first person or two hours and the first person's makeup starting to run because we're again we're filming in the summer so they need a touch-up now it's like spinning plates it's, it's always <laughs> it's always complicated but um you know and I, I do think i think the actors who showed up uh, to act as zombies really had fun but i think uh um it, i mean if i'd had time and and you know everything it would have been fun to have gotten made up and, and played with zombies in the film i do Briefly, right after Claire escapes after being assaulted um, and the zombie guy is following her, I have a cameo where the one actor wasn't available and that's my hand kind of like in, in close-up scrunching up uh, as, as she's being followed. So in a way, I do have a little bit of a cameo. I'm also one of the voices on the radio at the very beginning of the film. I, I'm kind of hard to hear. We, I, I, I mix myself down a little bit. Everything that you did worked so well, Jim. Now that the film is out there for everybody to see, I've got to ask you, because this is your first zombie film and you've got a ton of people in this one, which you don't normally have, what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker, as a director, uh, and even a writer that you will can now take forward into future films? Will you shy away from having 
this many zombies and people? Will you stick with with a, a total cast uh, amount of maybe six people? I'm curious what you learned as a uh, filmmaker. You know, you know uh, as far as large cast, uh, my next film uh, I'm shooting in 2024, uh, uh, it's going to have scenes with lots and lots and lots of people in it. Uh, we're going to be filming down in the Virgin Islands, uh, and mm. I just went down there for a scouting thing to meet some some key uh, people down down in, on uh, St. Thomas to to help us coordinate. Uh, I don't think I would do those scene those big scenes now without a better infrastructure, more crew, uh, more ads, uh, uh, production uh, management, and stuff. Um, it's a little bit too much. Um, you know when you know we did, we did this again. It was pretty small budget, and when you do small budget, you're, everyone's doing a couple different jobs, and and I'm you know directing, and I'm also kind of producing at the same time. Jamie Burdenhead is 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 act, is lead in film, and she's also producing. Um, and so you're switching hats, and and a lot of those things are really right brain left brain kind of things, and and it's complicated to switch back and forth. So Jamie's doing a, a very emotional scene, and then she kind of has to turn around and help somebody with the logistics of where we're all going to go have lunch or, or something like that. It's very counterintuitive. And I, and I think for me, it's, it's a matter of, I was just talking about this with somebody, it's a matter of just, you know, uh, picking the projects where I get to step back now lately. And then I have been able to do this on the last two or three films I've done where I get to step back and, and really just focus on making a really good film for for the viewer um, and not be focused on a lot of the infrastructure and, and, and production elements, uh, which, you know, I, I think just has a better result in the end of the day and leaves me with more energy to focus on, on making the best movie I can. Well, you made a hell of a film here with End yeah. Times, Jim. And Thank I you so I cannot wait to see what you bring me next. Awesome. Well, I have a a exorcism film called The Possession of Anne coming out this fall. Uh, we shot that last year, um, and it's done, and, and, and uh, we're working on, on a release date for it. It stars Sadie Katz, uh, who's in Wrong Turn 6 and a whole bunch of other stuff, and it also stars Vernon Wells, who was uh, uh, in The Road Warrior and Commando. Yes, and my, my uh, dear friend Vernon, yes. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's great. He was great to work with. He, every you know Between setups, I was always making him tell me stories about Road Warrior and and, and, and working with, with George Miller. Uh, and then inevitably the camera would be ready and he wouldn't be done with the story. And my producer would be like, uh, you know, can we... Like, no, he's not done with the story. <laughs> Hang on. Uh, uh, that's really fun. That's just... Uh, that's a, a, a like more claustrophobic movie. It's about a, a woman who's possessed and nobody believes her, so she checks into a cheap motel to exercise herself. And the only help she has is in the form of this disgraced priest that Vernon plays. Uh, another kind of two-hander, uh, like a little bit more of an intimate story, but really fun. And, and my, I got to reunite with my DP, Chad Courtney, who did House of Bad on it. It's a gorgeous-looking film, and I'm just really excited for that to come out in just a few months. Oh, wow. Well, I will be on the lookout for all of them, and hopefully we'll get to chat again. I hope so. That would be great, Debbie. Thank you so much. Jim, thank you so much. A lot of detail in that interview. A lot of inside information and insight that Jim really freely imparted. Uh, and I hope that a lot of the young filmmakers, new filmmakers, take a listen, really listen closely to what Jim had to say. But for all of you want to be producers out there, you really want to take a listen to what Jamie Bernadette has to say in this next interview. We spend a good portion of the interview talking about producing, what she looks for as a producer on a project, what she looks for as an actor, how acting and producing are so connected that she never takes off her producing hat when she's acting. She doesn't take off her acting hat when she's producing. And it's really fascinating to listen to the detail and, again, the minutiae of what Jamie looks at and puts into every film that she makes. Plus, you're also going to find out a bunch of films that she's got coming up. Uh, three movies on Lifetime a November 1st project with one of our friends, Simon Phillips. Uh, so, I'll stop yammering and you can take a listen to my exclusive interview with actor, producer, Jamie Bernadette, 
talking end times. Hi, Debbie. It's Jamie Bernadette. Hi, Jamie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am thrilled to be speaking with you. Talking to me. I have admired your work for so long, Jamie. Be it television one-offs, be it films, your TV movies, The Wrong Prince Charming. I love that one. I just watched Homestead not too long ago that you did. Just such a joy to always see you and the range that you have. And now with End Times, I really love this film. Oh, you do. I really love this film. As I had said to Jim when I spoke with him, this film shows what it means to be human when humanity appears lost. It's mm, a good way to put it. This was totally unexpected. It's very sparse. And you as a producer, I know you're involved, and with your wealth of experience in this genre, you, mm -hmm. you bring a lot to the table. So I know that you yeah. work closely with Jim and were involved in things such as the locations, and which are fabulously selected for this film. You've got a great DP, but the key to this whole thing is the chemistry that you and Craig have as Freddie and Claire. Thanks. Yeah, Craig's really great to work with. Um, yeah, he's he's fantastic. Couldn't have asked for a better co-lead, you know. Just awesome. The, this is such an interesting, interesting character that each of you plays coming from you're both loners. You're both essentially suffering from PTSD. Freddie, based on what he had to do to his daughter in order for him to survive... Claire, because she's raped by insane nutjobs on the yeah. bo borderline zombies. And watching you in particular with that emotional angst and burden, to s watch Claire come out of this over the course of the film and a friendship and reintroduction to being human is a joy to watch, Claire. It's a joy to watch, Jamie. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for paying such close attention and for your care and nice feedback. It's, it's really nice. What drew you to this film, you know, as an actor and as a producer? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think I definitely like um, challenging roles, um, for sure. So, you know, the last like, 20 minutes of the film is probably the toughest oh. acting I've ever done. Um, I don't know that there's ever been a slower zombie turn shown on TV or in film. Um, so, and they didn't use like any sort of um, sound design with my voice. You know, like a lot of people are asking me if that was my own voice throughout those scenes, and yes, it was. So it was just very challenging. I, I like those emotional, challenging, physically demanding roles. Um, like the rape scene, any rape scene is always very, you know, difficult to do emotionally and physically. So I think just me as an artist, I like to, you know, extend myself and... Um, directions and ways that, you know, I haven't tra traversed, you know. Mm -hmm. This role in and of itself, this is a very physical role. A lot of people may look at this and say, ah, they're just walking around. No, you are climbing rocks through canyons, caves. This is physically strenuous. And under yeah. the California sun in summer, it's damn hot. Oh, yeah. It was sometimes 100, I think, or 110, like it was in places. You know, it was really hot. And Craig was covered in head to toe throughout the film. Like, he had the pants on, the long sleeve shirt, and it was, he, he was, had worse than I did. <laughs> so I can't complain too much. But, yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was rough for sure. Okay, well, as a producer, did you a lot for sunscreen budgeting for yourself since so much of you is exposed to the sun? Yeah, I don't think 
any of us ever burned um, to, to think back on it. Yeah, so... Oh my! Yeah, you always got to take care of your people for sure. <laughs> what is it that spoke to you about this film when this script came to you that had you saying, "Yes, I want to do this," especially as a producer? Yeah, I mean, as a producer, I mean, horror always sells for one thing, and then you know the post-apocalyptic subgenre of horror is extremely popular um you know there's a lot of talk about the end times you know currently so um i look at something as a producer and i have to ask myself is this going to sell um is the current audience going to be interested in watching this um so yeah that's that's one of the main factors as a producer. I, I have to look at that because I have investors and, you know, I raise like 99% of the money for the film. Um, you know, I just said that Jim put in a little bit. So himself, like, so, and I put some of my own, so I was executive producer as well, but I, you know, all the investors were mine. So when I take on that responsibility of pulling investors in, I take it on as a responsibility to get them their money back. Mm -hmm. So that's always at the forefront of my mind. Um, you know, um, so yeah, that, that's, that's a huge thing. Is it a genre and a subgenre that people are interested in that's going to sell? Mm-hmm. And what about as an actor? Do you take off your producer's hat, like with the end times? Or is there no way to break the two apart when you're looking at it as an actor and a producer? No, you never break the two apart. I can never take off my producer hat. Like, Jim, I remember him joking around, like, there's Jamie getting raped, and then I'm like, cut, and then she's like, oh, hi, so-and-so, there's the crafty table over there. Get yourself some snacks. Like, I, I, you know, yeah, I'm always, always, always wearing the producer hat. Like, you have to be able to multitask like that, and as an actor, too, you have to be able to go in and out of character at the snap of a finger because you can't stay in character in between takes because you're busy producing. Mm -hmm. Do you like wearing those multiple hats on a production? You know, there's good things and bad things about producing. <laughs> um, you know, first the, the, the first thing I'll say is, is the challenging part of it is, you know, it's a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of liability and you're dealing with everyone, you know, um, taking care of everyone basically. So, you know, it's, it's the toughest job I've ever done. Um, but the plus side of it is that you get more of a say in the entire process. Like you get a say in who your cinematographer is, you know, um, and in this, I was the casting director, I knew the entire cast, except for Craig. Wow. He was the only one, yeah, <laughs> who auditioned. Uh, him and one other person, only two people auditioned for that lead role. Um, you know, and, and so I didn't know Craig, and either did Jim. Um, so we had never worked with him, but everyone else in the cast, I knew. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I, you know, I like to pull actors I know are good. I don't make them jump through hoops. I don't make them audition, you know, if I know their work. Like, I try not to do that. So as a producer, I got to be the casting director, too, so I had to stay in the, the cast. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I'm going to put the strongest actors I know in this. And, and I think the cast is really strong. So I get to do that, and then, you know, I get a say in everything from you know the filming to the editing to the sound design the music you know um we use the composer alan a-l-u-n is his name um richards he's in south africa he composed 
for the furnace, the movie, I, I was the lead there by the Oscar-nominated director, Daryl Root. So that's how I met him. So I was able to pull him in for this and compose, and I think the music is gorgeous. Um, so as a producer, I get a say in the artistic elements and the business side of things, like with the selling of the film, like I've known the asylum since 2010 mm-hmm. and they distributed the last film that I produced with six friends. So, you know, I have a relationship with them, a longstanding relationship. So, and I know that they, you know, they got the film to select theaters. They have it on, you know, they have it on video on demand sites right now and there's tons more on the way. So they do a great job. So as a producer, I'm able to say, let's not go with such and such distributor. We had tons of offers. Let's go with this, these over here, the asylum in this case, because they're amazing and I know they're going to do a great job. So as a producer, I get a say in that. When I'm just acting, sometimes you do like this amazing film and you don't have a say in who distributes it, and then the producers end up giving it to a distributor who barely gets it out there. <laughs> so, and you can't do anything about it as an actor. So, I liked having a say in all of those elements to, you know, turn out the best product. Well, I have to for say, everyone involved, not just me, but for every all the artists involved. Every element of End Times is first rate, Jamie. I love Ray Carwell's cinematography. I love the, the starkness, the harshness, the degradation of California coast because we get ocean, we get mountains, we get beautiful shots up there in Laurel Canyon. You really give us, you know, his imagery is wonderful. Yeah, um, it is. And, you know, that just tickled me to see that. But you also give us in this film a balance and you mentioned the score and that is that provides the hu- that provides the human element the beauty that has been lost in this apocalyptic time you keep reminding us with little things such as the beautiful montage where you're learning how to use a machete which i have to say is one of the funniest se- things i've seen on film from you that your training montage was really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and we get the beauty up in the hills and the, and the bouquet that Ray gets with the camera, with the, with the sun flares. And it's beautiful against this harshness. So everything looks and feels authentic. But you always, mm-hmm. thanks to your music selection, to your composer... And with Ray as your cinematographer and capturing these different touchstones, we never lose sight of the potential for beauty, which plays in well with the heartbreaking, fatalistic ending of this film without giving it away. It is heartbreaking. But there's still beauty to be found. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. It is beautiful. I even think the heartbreaking scenes at the end, the way they were shot, are beautiful. Absolutely. And your performance there, I mean, I was clutching my throat Mm -hmm. watching you. Just absolutely amazing. I'm just gobsmacked with your performance and then Craig's emotion and his response was just, it just guts you. It guts you to the core. Mm-hmm. Um, Good. Just, yeah, thank you. But it's that constant reminder that we get with the with the music, and then with little snippets of beauty that are still left in the world, that add a level to this film that you don't normally see in a post apocalyptic film. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for understanding the film so well. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, yeah, it seemed like you really got it, what we were going for. Um, totally, you totally got it. <laughs> and I, and I feel like, you know, some of the comments, people didn't get it. You know, they're like, where are all the zombies? And this is kind of boring. And this is long. And like, just like, didn't get the heart of the story. No, this isn't and the beauty a... and what everything you just said, you know, you nailed it. 
this isn't a slasher film. This is not a gory monster film. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is about losing humanity mm-hmm. and everything that that encompasses. So it's important to have those bits of beauty that give hope as to mm-hmm. why Freddie and Claire would want to keep trying to survive and to grow their friendship and grow as people. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's something that a lot of people miss when they're looking at a, an, a post-apocalyptic film or a dystopian film because they're so used to having total and complete decimation that that's what it is. Total decimation and everything is destroyed and it's black and red and muddy. Yeah. Yeah, and instant gratification, too. Right. I think our society has really gotten used to instant gratification, everything being at their fingertips. They want it now, now, now. They get it now. Like, it just, you know, the patience level, so I think it's really... Dwindled. <laughs> Dwindled, yeah. <laughs> now, something that you do, talking about zombies and people complaining about not enough zombies. There are plenty of zombies. And not only are there plenty of zombies, but the makeup is first rate, Jamie. I don't know who you got to do the zombie makeup, but what I love about this is it is not over the top. It's very realistic from a physiologic standpoint of how a body would degrade from a disease like this disease that has caused this apocalypse. I yeah. so love that. Seeing that instead of this overnight, I wake up, I'm a zombie. Up, oh, I get bit, I'm a zombie. This is, we're watching humanity drain from people because of the multiple levels of zombie that we see. It's really important how that makeup was done, and it is excellent and I'm so glad that you all were on the same page and did not do the over-the-top blood and black and gore yeah oh good thank you yeah we wanted people to be able to relate to it you know um versus going to the extreme like it's almost like at the end like somebody dying of cancer who you love you know and you having to watch that I think there's a parallel there for sure very much so very much so but what is it about Claire that that spoke to you that made you want to play Claire? Well, I liked her transition. You know, when she starts out, she's not equipped to survive in this harsh world. You know, um, and she's very naive, um, very trusting, and, you know, of course she toughens up and she has to learn you can't trust everyone and it's I think a lot of people in life go through this you know and unfortunately (laughs) it's an unfortunate thing but I I think as we get older and have experiences we learn who we can and can't trust and that the world isn't all nice Mm -hmm. um so so yeah her whole transition there and and she does become a stronger person um, which I liked that. I liked um, her vulnerability and then her strength. Now that this film is out, everybody gets to see it. Because you are a producer, you are an actor. What did you take away, learn about yourself as a filmmaker in making this specific film that you can take forward into your future work, be it as a producer, as an actor? Hmm. To answer your question, well, with every film that I produce, I always learn a lot. (laughs) 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 Um, I mean, I, I didn't go, like, to a university, you know, for film production. Um, I learned, you know, as an actor, you know, and then kind of watching and stuff like that and talking to people. And then I just took it on and I did it and learned and learned. So every time that I do it, 
I learn more and more. There's always something to learn. And there's probably even people who've gone to university who didn't learn everything they need to know, and they're still learning. And I think that's the thing about life is you're always learning in life, no matter what profession you do. I'm sure there's always something to learn, even with acting, you know, like I've acted in so many things now, but as long as you're open to learning and, and receiving that, you should be able to to learn. So, yeah, with every every project I produce, I, uh, there's always some, <laughs> lots of things sometimes that I'm like, okay, don't do that next time, do this next time, you know, that kind of thing. So it, it gets better. Was there a big don't do this again moment with this film? Uh oh, the laughter tells um, me. <laughs> uh, hmm. I mean, not a big thing, you know. No, not like a major um thing. Um, no, more like little things, but yeah, nothing, nothing major. Well, good. That's a testament to how much you have already learned over the course of your career. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, everyone's really helpful. Like, you know, I have my mentors for sure. You know, I have uh, seasoned producers who, you know, help me and give me advice and stuff like that. So I'm very thankful for them. So now what's coming up next for you? I know Sebastian is always is already out. It's on Tubi right now. Mm-hmm. But I know yeah. you've got a ton of stuff that's in post, in pre. You're always working. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I have a couple Lifetime films that I would imagine, well, three that should be out, you know, very soon. Because mm-hmm. um, I filmed them a bit ago, not too long ago, but, you know, earlier this year. Um, so, yeah, those should should be out, I would imagine, pretty soon. But I don't have a date, but... The film I do have an exact date of release on is The Influencer Clickbait. Um, it's coming out November 1st. I don't know on what platforms or if it'll be in, you know, theaters or, or, or not, but I know it's November 1st. It's actually a sequel to a film called The Influencer, and it's a trilogy. So I'm in the second one. Um, Simon Phillips. Uh, is an actor in it, producer and everything. And Simon wrote this one too, didn't he? Uh, yeah. Love Simon dearly. You know, Simon, I, I love Simon. And I'm so happy that I didn't realize you were in the film with him. Yeah, yeah. Oh. We, we've done two films now together. So, yeah, well. he's so fantastic to work with. Such a professional, and he's a powerhouse. I mean, he produces just all the time and acting all the time and he's on this tv show and that tv show <laughs> like my husband and i are always trying to watch everything like he is just a powerhouse yeah one of the most working actors producers that i know and he's incredible and he loves his craft and what he does so yeah. much and that comes through in everything he does yeah he does he really does. Yeah. Oh, see, now I have two reasons to see de-influencer clickbait. Not, ju- <laughs> not just Simon, but you. Oh, thank you. It looks really good. I've seen the trailer. It's not out yet, but he showed me, and I was like, wow, it looks so good. <laughs> so uh, good and so powerful, and it's such a powerful message about social media, too. <laughs> um it's like a horror film with a message, you know. <laughs> I, I, I like that aspect. Oh, well, I'm definitely, as we are talking, I have written it in my calendar for November 1st already. Oh, good. <laughs> I will see anything that you're in, Jamie. I will be on the lookout for the Lifetime movies because you have such a great range. You you always bring something new to the characters in the table. And seeing what you give end times here it has just been fabulous. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. I can't wait to see more from you, and hopefully we'll get to chat again. 
I hope so, yes, and great talking to you. This has been fabulous speaking with you as well, Jamie. I really appreciate it. It's the end of the day, and you took your time to give me a call. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Jamie. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right, bye. And that is all the time we have today. I hope you've enjoyed these interviews with Jim and with Jamie. Be on the lookout. End Times is still in select theaters around the country right now. It is also available digitally. You will not be disappointed with this film. And of course, be on the lookout and stay tuned to Behind the Lens for information on Jim's upcoming films as well as Jamie's. I've already got November 1st marked on my calendar for for the collaboration with Jamie and our friend Simon Phillips. Uh, and I'm looking forward to those Lifetime, mo Lifetime movies she has coming out. Three of them. So, as I get information, and hopefully I'll be speaking with both of them again, sooner rather than later. So, until next week, and I haven't decided what you're getting next week. We could be going to an island paradise for an action film from Sean Paul Piccinino, or we might be talking with a director in Paris about one of the most delightful animated films to come from Netflix. So you'll find out next week. Until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.